All right, well, I'm going to jump into things right away. Uh, I may have bitten off a bit more than I can chew this morning. Uh, I ended up actually breaking this sermon up into two because it was going to be really long. Uh, So over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the flood narrative, which spans four chapters of Genesis. And I've, I've broken this story down into parts A and parts B. And so over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to look at these predominant themes. So part A, which is this morning, I want to look at why did God bring the flood and why was it that Noah and his family were spared? And then after that, we'll look a little bit at the flood narrative itself. Next week, with part B, we'll see what happens after the flood. There are some very kind of uh, important um, interpretive pieces there that I want to spend a little bit more time on and not just gloss over too quickly. And in particular, this covenant that God makes with Noah and his descendants. So if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to start at Genesis chapter 6. I'm not going to read the entirety of the narrative. I'm not, what we're going to look at this morning actually spans three of those four chapters. Uh, But I want to focus on a few key pieces of the text. So, you know, as I read, go ahead and keep the Bibles open so we can refer back to it. Now, this first segment that we're going to look at addresses the first theme this morning. Why did God send the flood and why was Noah spared? So if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read Genesis 6, verses 1 through 12. It begins, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man for whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now this first, what is it, four, five verses, first four verses, uh, this first part of the passage that I just read is one of those stories in scriptures that I get questions about with some regularity. It's this kind of seems, comes off as this strange, almost like fantasy-esque type of story depending on your interpretation of the events. It describes the sons of God and the daughters of men having, engaging in relationship and producing these mighty men called the Nephilim. Now, too often we get caught up in the identity of these characters and we miss the broader story that is being communicated. Now, no one knows fully or precisely the right way to interpret 
this passage, but I want to give you a few options. These are Actually, all three of these are found in the study Bible that I was using this week to prepare. Uh, I remember going to seminary. I actually had to write a paper on uh, this, and, and these are the three most popular uh, interpretations for them. Now, the interpretation that I've heard shared most frequently is that this episode describes celestial beings who lusted after human women and married with them, producing some type of giant offspring, the Nephilim. I remember as a kid, I read, I was a big fan of Madeline Engel. She's the one that wrote A Wrinkle in Time, Wind at the Door. Uh, and, and one of the books that she read that's not as well known is a book called Many Waters, which is basically a kind of retelling of this type of event. And, and that's the position that she kind of holds in that book. Now, in support of this position is that the book of Job uses the term sons of God to describe angels. These angels that, you know, have this audience before God, including Satan. And that's when Satan says, hey, you know, there's this guy Job. It's because you're blessing him. You know, I, we, this isn't a sermon on Job, but that's, that's kind of what's happening there. Satan is called a son of God in that passage. But I lost my spot. All right, they, that's where, where I was going next. Yeah, so the Nephilim then end up being these superhuman beings, almost like demigods that come out of this kind of uh, unlikely union between the two. Now, personally, I'm not convinced of this position. Many hold to it, but I'm not convinced to it for a few reasons. Nowhere else on, in Scripture is there any indication that, human, that, that, excuse me, that angels were, were sexualized beings. We're not given any indication that they possess human anatomy. Additionally, there are many places in the Scripture where this term, sons of God, is used but used to describe those who are faithful to God, humans. For instance, Paul says in Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. But most convincingly in my mind is that the purpose of this text is not to criticize fallen angels. God's not setting out the flood to to wipe them out. It's not for their sake that God is destroying humanity. It's for the wickedness of mankind on the earth. If angels were the ones who were the transgressors in this context, it seems odd that the Lord would destroy nearly all of the humans as a result. And so I don't find it compelling personally. Now what I think is more likely is that these two groups of people, the sons of God and the daughters of men, are two different groups of humans, two different groups of people. Kind of the the last two interpretations fall under this. The first is that the sons of God are those who are in positions of influence and royalty, kings, if you will. Many ancient kings, both pagan, well, mostly pagan, claimed to be the offspring of the gods, to be the sons of gods. Now, that could be, that could be, but based off the text that we actually skipped last week, and, and uh, kind of from last week to this week, we skipped chapter 5 as well. I, I want to suggest one other option. Now, last week we read the story of Cain and Abel, and I skipped eight verses in there. And these verses describe the genealogies of Cain, his descendants. Now, chapter 5, we see in Genesis, lists the genealogies that originate with Adam, but go through his third son, Seth. And so what we have set up in Scripture are kind of two parallel tracks of family ancestry. You have the family legacy of Cain, which is wrought with brokenness. It displays a path of opposition to God. 
and you have the legacy of Seth, which has characters like Enoch, who, who was righteous enough that he didn't die of natural causes, but was potentially carted right up into God's presence. And so the family of Seth is to be understood as the one who is in alignment with God. So my opinion is, again, take it or leave it. You don't have to agree with me. That's fine. But it's to understand the sons of God as the descendants of Seth. And the daughters of men are from the descendants of Cain. Many generations after the brothers, these would have been different nations. They would have been different tribes. And so there was going to be intermarrying between them, which I think is what produces these Nephilim. Now, the Nephilim, which are typically understood to be giants, but even that, I'm not sure, is completely accurate. The Hebrew word for Nephilim means fallen ones. It says nothing about their stature. Stature, excuse me, not statue, stature. In fact, it's the Greek translation, the Septuagint of the Hebrew Bible, which translates this with the Greek word gigantes, which I'm sure you can get as a pretty quick jump to, uh, f- from there to, to giants. So even when we see, we see these warriors come up. I mean, it couldn't have been these exact warriors because they would have presumably died in the flood, but we see another kind of group of people called the Nephilim in the book of Numbers. The Hebrew, the Hebrew men are spying in the promised land and they run into them, and it says that they they were like grasshoppers in the Nephilim's sight. Now, are we meant to understand that literally, that they were head and shoulders above them, or was it meant to be more understood metaphorically, symbolically, right, That, that these were trained warriors, whereas the spies were untrained, literally a few months out of slavery. Now, We don't really know the answer to those questions, but I just wanted to provide some of those because, again, this is a question that I get pretty regularly uh, about this text. So we don't know the the precise, but those are some things. Feel free to take them, chew on them. Wherever you land, in some sense it doesn't matter because at this point in time, I've kind of buried the lead in terms of what we're investigating, which is why was it that God brought the flood and that Noah and his family were spared? Now, in the text, I think the answer to that first question is pretty obvious. Humanity had wandered off of the path of God, and they had descended into wickedness. In fact, in verse 2 there, you see this pattern, right? The sons of God saw that the women were attractive or good, and they took. And this is the same pattern that we saw of Eve in Genesis 3-6, where she ate of the tree, or the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? She saw that it was good or desirable, and she took it. So I think we are to understand that this is another failure, another example, just like Eve and Adam, of a failure to live rightly, that humanity had continued their descent into sin. In 2014, Hollywood came out with a dramatic rendition of the flood in a movie called Noah stars Russell Crowe. I've not seen the film. I don't know if any of you, but I had a number of friends who watched it and said that in their opinion, it really showcased the justification for the flood, that it displayed wickedness and violence of humanity. One of the websites that I go to regularly to determine uh, whether or not a movie is appropriate for my kids is a a site called Common Sense Media. And they kind of rate age-wise, and they they tell you different classifications, you know, categories, how much of this, you know, violence or swearing or whatever it might be. 
And, and the way they said, they say the film was, quote, a dark biblical take which is brutal, violent, and gory. We see such violence in the texts, like verses 6 and 7, to the point that God was grieved. He was saddened. I know it says that he regretted, but again, that probably is better, not that God changed his mind, or that he, but, but that he was just so overcome with grief is probably what that's really uh, highlighting in there. He, he was saddened that he created humanity, so he makes a plan to wipe them out. But there's hope. There's hope for this continued promise. The promise we saw two weeks ago with Genesis 3.15, that God will provide a pathway for humanity to survive, even if it is by the skin of their teeth. The promise of Eve will be maintained through the preservation of one family. This is part of God's plan of redemption. And we can even see this in the structuring of the text. Again, I know this is a very technical sermon, but there's a lot, of, there's a lot in here that we miss with just a superficial kind of glossing over reading. A few weeks ago, I shared with you all uh, a um, literary device that the Old Testament often uses called a chiasm. A chiasm, think about it like bookends or maybe a sandwich, you know, a literary sandwich, pieces of bread. And, and they link these similar terms on the outside, like the bread, and then the inside, I don't know, might be your cheese, and then you get to the meat, which is in the middle. And if we look at the selection that I read, we see the bookends. We see them describing the wickedness of humanity. Verse 5 tells us that the wickedness of man was great in the earth with regard to their thoughts. Verse 11 says something similar, that the earth was corrupt with human violence. But inside, we get two descriptions, lifting up, contrasting the, that wickedness on the earth with Noah. Verse 8 describes Noah as having found favor in the eyes of God. And that's paired with verse 9, which, gives him, which labels him as righteous, as blameless. And so the wickedness of the earth, earth is meant to be seen as a stark contrast with the behavior of Noah. But I think we can actually go one step further if we look at the structure of this text. The formula that we've seen that has guided the book of Genesis are these generations, right? That's, if you remember what I said, that the, the Greek word for that generations is Genesis. It's where we get the name of this book. And that there's 11 of these kind of headings, section headings in the Bible. Verse 9, the start of it reads, these are the generations of Noah. It brings us into this section of the text. This is actually the third Genesis to this point. The first we saw when we looked at uh, the second day of, or the second kind of story of creation. Two, four, the generations of the heaven and earth. And the second, which we didn't look at, we glossed over, is verse five, or chapter five, verse one. These are the generations of Adam. So this chiasm, this kind of sandwich, if you will, is meant to be a bridge. Connecting the tail end of the section of Adam's descendants and kind of picking up the story through the preservation of Noah and his family in this section. Noah was the one by which the promise of God of his deliverance would continue. That, they, that humanity would continue to live in spite of this judgment that was coming. The next few chapters detail the actual flood narrative. Now, if you've been in church in any length of time, I'm sure this is a story that you've heard on multiple occasions, right? Noah is warned by God of this impending judgment. He's instructed to, to build this ark by which God is going to save humanity, is going to save the, the land and, and sky animals. 
You know, the Bible uses this kind of archaic measurement called a cubit. Cubit was roughly like, I think, your fingertip to your elbow, about a a foot and a half, but it, it changed a little bit depending on who was in power. But to modernize it a bit, if you're following along there, I think we're in chapter seven now, this ark would have been about 450 feet long. We're talking a football field and a half length. 75 feet in width and 45 feet high. I don't know how tall this is. Probably taller than this building here, this sanctuary here. This means that it would have had a volume. I mean, check this out. 1.4 million cubic feet in volume. I was trying to find a comparison. Google didn't really help me out with that. The square footage of Heinz Field is 1.4 million cubic, or square feet, but I guess if, if the, if, anyway, sorry. So anyway, this is a monstrosity. And God brings two of every bird, of every land animal, with the exception of clean animals, right? We see this at the start. I think it's the start of chapter eight. Again, I'm, I'm a little bit off myself, but the clean animals that are used for sacrifices actually had seven pairs in the ark. These pairs entered the ark as the rain came and preserved them until it was abated. Now, between the, t- the rain coming and the time it drew, the earth dried out was 300, about 370 days, so a little more than a year that Noah and his family was in there. This is all information you've probably heard before but I want to point out some themes for us to consider as we read it. Now, as you read the narrative, there's a lot of overlapping language that's used here and what we see actually in Genesis chapter 1, that the elements of creation actually are bringing about this undoing of creation and then forming a recreation. So, for example, chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, it reads, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Right? There's an intensity to this language. It's meant to evoke these deep waters from below and the, that firmament above, which were separated on day two of creation. Genesis 8.1 shows this turning point of the narrative, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts of the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the water subsided. God didn't leave Noah there, but remembered him. He takes action for his welfare. And notice that wind. Wind is really important, because the Hebrew word for wind is a word that's ruach, which also happens to be the Hebrew word for spirit. So I think we're supposed to, it's supposed to be evocative. It's supposed to remind us of the spirit, the ruach, hovering over the faces of the deep in Genesis chapter one, verse two. There's so much symbolism in this passage for us. When the waters abate enough, Noah sends out a raven, sends out a dove, these birds to scatter out the land until there's room for them to disembark. And then notice chapter 8, verses 15 to 17. They serve as a restatement of the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, like we saw in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And then Noah's first action is to build an altar for the Lord, to sacrifice some of the clean animals, right? Thanks goodness he brought extra of those. The text in 8.21 describes this offering, and this is, I'm going to come back to this in a minute, describes this offering as pleasing to the Lord. God approved of this sacrifice. Now, next week, we'll get to what comes next, God's covenant with Noah. 
But I want to pause here for a minute because for the flood, I want to address the historicity, the authenticity of this event. There's a lot of people who question stories in the Bible. Did they really happen? They seem incredulous. They don't seem to, under, to, to align with what we understand about modern science or geology. But I think one of the strongest arguments of the reality of the flood experience is actually that it's not the only testament to this event in ancient history. The oldest piece of human literature that we have dates back to about 2100 BC, and it's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And this work, it's a collection of poems, it's prose, it's depictions of pagan gods uh, from this like Mesopotamian region, this region, you know, what they call the Fertile Crescent, you know, Israel and Jordan and, you know, a lot of these, Lebanon, a lot of these countries here. But in their mythology, they actually have a flood story that is very, very similar in a lot of ways to what we read in the Bible. In their mythology, and there's differences, of course, too, one of the gods, because they have many gods, leaks this plan to destroy humanity to a man named Utnapishtim. And this man demolishes his house, uses the lumber to build a giant boat that his relatives and the craftsmen, they, they, I guess, get to carry it along to, board the boat with, quote, all the beasts and animals of the field. The rains came, flooding the earth. When they had abated, Utnapishtim's boat became lodged at the top of a mountain, something we see in the Noahic account, to which he released a dove, a swallow, which we don't see, and a raven in succession to see when it's okay to depart the boat. Getting out safely, he builds an altar and sacrifices animals to his gods, of which the gods are pleased by. And Utnapishtim and his wife are then granted immortality and become gods themselves. Now, this pagan document is important for a few counts. First, I think it gives extra evidence to the historicity of this flood narrative. The fact that it corroborates so much of the story that we find in Noah as a contemporary source should indicate to us that something resembling this event happened. Clearly, I'm biased, and I believe that the Bible gets it right and this gets it wrong, but the fact that it exists, I think, points to something happening something that was passed down or through oral tradition after the events. And, you know, the, the, the narratives do diverge at some very significant places, but they also align, right, from the destruction of humanity to the same types of birds being released, even this offering and sacrifice after getting out of the boat. Now, the primary difference, of course, between them is who, who has the authority in this? It's the authority and power of Yahweh, of God, when compared to this limited nature of the pagan gods in the Epic of Gilgamesh. For example, a common belief in the ancient world was that the sacrifices of the gods and goddesses, or excuse me, the sacrifice to the gods and goddesses, was a way that humans provided sustenance to them. That's actually how the gods and goddesses were fed in, in this, the ancient, uh, you know, religions. In the tale of Utnapishtim, the gods, because of the rain, had not eaten for some time, and when he puts the meat on the altar, it describes it, quote, the, the gods as hovering, like f hovering over the sacrifice like flies. Imagine, you know, you can imagine that, right? You, you, you throw out some, some meat outside and, you know, this 93-degree weather, 
let it bake for a little bit, you're going to have some flies hovering over there. They were famished is what it's indicating in that. Now, this is far cry from the independence of God. He doesn't need humanity to prove to provide his sustenance. In fact, I was looking for a um, call to worship this morning, flipping through the Psalms, and it's exactly what one of the Psalms says. He's like, I don't eat the flesh of bulls and goats. That's not the purpose of the sacrifices. While many of these recorded facts between the two stories are similar, you get very, very different pictures of the gods that are worshipped in them. I'm going to end our narrative portion here at this morning. Like I said, we'll look at chapter 9 next week. There's just too much to do, too much in there to do it justice, uh, and I don't want to cram it together. And I know I've shared a lot of information, as I said already. I know this is very technical, uh, kind of reading, investigation of the text. But I want us to, to take some time to think about what are the take-homes for us. As we look at the story of the flood, what should we be learning from it for our lives? Why is this significant? What elements should we be drawing out? Right? We might debate, we might argue over the identity of the sons of God, the daughters of men, and the Nephilim. We may spar over whether or not the, the flood was a global event or a localized event. But the answers to those questions, while important, they don't really have any bearing on our daily lives. As we look through the history of humanity, there are two things that are enduring. The depravity of humanity and the faithfulness of God. These are the two truths that were present through history and will be, continue to be present until God comes again and brings his final kingdom. And this is what we see here in this text. A few weeks ago, we saw sin begin with Adam and Eve's disobedience. We saw it continue last week with Cain's murder of Abel. But from there, we see the continued, in Genesis chapter 6, the continued descent into lust, violence, selfishness, until the Lord says enough is enough. This summer, we've been studying First Peter during Bible study, and in the opening line, Peter addresses his recipients those who are the elect of God, who find themselves to be exiles, foreigners, strangers in the Roman Empire, that they don't quite fit. They're not quite at home. The Roman Empire was known for its rampant hedonism, paganism, political maneuvering for selfish gain. Peter is calling the earliest followers of Jesus to acknowledge that they ought to be living differently than the predominant culture. I think there are many overlaps between what we read in Genesis 6, what we see at the time of 1 Peter with the Roman Empire, and even now in the current state of the world. That the depravity of humanity has not changed much. Sex continues to be a commodity that is marketed. Violence terrorizes our streets. Those with power do everything they can to hoard that power at the expense of the vulnerable. Think a calling for us is to live like Noah, that we ought to be righteous, to be blameless in our generation in spite of the cultural movements. But that is a lot easier said than done. It is easy to get caught up in the wiles of a society that is distant from God especially when those distinctions seem to be so subtle. You could go any 
number of directions with this. But I want to just kind of try to prime that pump, give you a few examples. Most of us participate in some way in the social media experiment. Algorithms which are designed to give you dopamine hits with likes. In this system, there are many people that are hurt as a result. Many individuals, especially young girls, are turning to the provocative because why? The market dictates that that's what gets likes. And so as a result, to get self-esteem, they go down, down paths that perhaps they wouldn't have otherwise because it's like a drug to them, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. And the truth is many of us are contributors in some way. Right? We're part of this. We're complicit in a system in our country which has 400 million guns and by some count, 314 mass shootings in America year to date, first half of 2022. Again, it's not a statement. This is not a statement for or against gun control. But what we see is that people are literally dying and many use these times of crisis just to build their political platforms, to grandstand. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, but that's what we typically see when we come out of that political maneuvering for selfish gain. Most of us probably have a smartphone. No, not all of us. Most of us have smartphones with lithium-ion batteries in them. Those same lithium-ion lithium batteries are what are often used in electric vehicles that are all the rage right now. Well, an important critical component in that is cobalt, the element cobalt. The vast majority of cobalt is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and this is dangerous work that is done in horrid conditions, mostly by elementary-age children who get 2 to $3 a day for risking their lives, losing limbs in these mines. But, you know, every two, three years, we'll go out and buy a new iPhone. Even when we try to walk the straight and narrow, even when we try to live as exiles, try to be countercultural to the broader world, we cannot help but be brought into areas of sin, if not explicitly, right? Maybe you're not out there kind of living in violence, you know? Maybe you're not out there gossiping. Maybe you're not living explicitly sinfully. But there's a lot of places where we're complicit, especially in such an interdependent world that we currently live in. When we read Bible stories like this, it is very common to try to kind of picture ourselves as one of the characters. And as we read stories like this, I'd encourage us not too hastily to jump and imagine ourselves as a member of Noah's family, being saved from the wrath of God. Instead, I think we should at least consider how our sin, how our violence, how our brokenness has contributed to the world's problems. As I read to open this morning that there was a time that we were considered God's natural enemies, deserving of his wrath. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. But that's not where the story ends. None are righteous but God. But that's not the only enduring truth for human history. The other is the continued, persevering faithfulness of God. That while our attitudes and behaviors might be deserving of wrath, 
God formulated a plan that would bring redemption. He formulated a plan that would take us from the position of sinner about to be destroyed by a flood and places us safely in the boat. Not because of anything that we've done, but fully by his mercy and grace. This is the crux of the gospel. It gives us hope. As Tim Keller says through the gospel, we see that we are more sinful and broken than we would ever care to admit and at the same time, more deeply loved than we would dare hope. It is through that wonderful love and faithfulness of Jesus Christ that God demonstrated his love and faithfulness to us. We have hope even though we have sinned and even though we continue to wrestle with sin, we have hope that God has redeemed us, that he has defeated the power of sin and death in our lives. And he's vowed to give us the freedom of his spirit both in this life and in the age to come. Next week, we're going to look more closely at the conclusion of the story. And I think there we see uh, a bit more dramatically the promises of God through his covenant with Noah. But this morning, it kind of feels awkward to leave it here, but I'm kind of leaving us in a, that it's okay for us to sit a bit in despair, right? I want to give us a glo- glimpse of the hope that we have in Jesus. But I think it's also important to be here sometimes, to not move too quickly out of considering our own culpability, our own con- contributions to the mess of the world. It's okay for us to, to dwell on some of that. Again, I don't want us to stay there, but don't skip over that step either. As we do so, here, here are some places, some areas for us to, to think about, to reflect on. Consider the great grief. We see this in the text, that God had, he was very sorrowful for the sin that he saw, the brokenness that he saw. Think about how your actions grieve God. Right? I mean, Paul talks about that it's possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit, even, that look like? Think about that. Because, you know, Bonhoeffer coined this term that he calls cheap grace, and cheap grace is grace that costs us nothing. It's the, you know, God forgives me anyway, so it doesn't matter what I do. In some sense, I think it's important for us at times to, to sit and dwell and acknowledge the, the weight of, of our sin. Again, we don't want to stay there. We don't end in despair. The hope is the gospel, the good news, but I think it's important to get there sometimes to think about that. Man, what does it reveal about God to to wrestle with this, that yet again he doesn't wash his hands of humanity, but he preserves it, mankind, in the midst of judgment. And then lastly, this is the passage that I opened with for our call to worship, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Sit and meditate on 2, 1 through 3, that you were by nature children of wrath, objects of God's wrath that we were dead in our transgression. Sit on that in those three verses. And then after you've sat on that, then go to four through seven. But God, being rich in mercy. So think about that this week. Use this as an opportunity to thank God for his gracious work in his life. And the purpose of these reflection questions, I'll put them on Facebook like I typically do each week, tomorrow or Tuesday, and it's just meant to be a touch point. You know, instead of just sitting here for, you know, an hour and a half service and then walking out those doors and forgetting, it's just meant to be a point where we can circle back to some of these themes in our lives each week. 
If I could invite you to, to join me in prayer. God, I am grateful for your enduring faithfulness that what you set your mind to, those whom you commit to, you do not leave. You do not abandon. And so while humanity had strayed very, very far from you, God, you provide deliverance through Noah and his family. That this promise of the offspring of Eve that would eventually uh, crush the head of the offspring of the serpent that can still be a reality or could have still been a reality. Lord, I'm encouraged by this because I know that you don't leave me. You don't abandon any of us in the places where we wrestle with sin, even if that wrestle continues to just seem to win the day time and time again. Lord, we, we take heart and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only that we've experienced forgiveness, but God, through that gospel, that you are breaking the power, those shackles, the strongholds of sin in our lives so that we can live holy and righteous and blameless. Not because of, uh, you know, that we're these upstanding moral citizens, but because your spirit lives within us and is working that truth, that sanctification out in our lives. May that continue to be true for us, Lord knowing that you walk with us every step of the way and that you have not abandoned us. Praise be to you, Lord. In Jesus, amen.